be Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hey, 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 hey. And freelance writer and critic for Nehru. Hello, hello, hello. It is the Sydney Film Festival. We are in the middle of it. We're loving it. We're back in full swing. We're seeing many, many, many films and many, many more to come. We are covering at least five films in this half hour and into the podcast, a full 20 movies. Mm. It is uh, just, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of exciting and we're really, really keen. And it's happening now in Sydney, events in Ms. George Street, State Theatre, Ritz, Head, Northam, Dandy, Newtown, Chevelle Cinema, all around the city. Central. And Powerhouse. It's happening everywhere. Yeah, that's right. You're right. There is a lot of good. I've been overwhelmingly impressed and surprised by the consistency of quality. And I've been wondering what's causing this. Is it because this is the first festival in two years? Is it because people have been inspired by the craziness that's hit the world over the past couple of years? I think the answer is all of the above. Sorry. I think the answer is the timing of the festival. I think given November, you get the pick off basically the entire calendar year mm. of all the festivals. Not just the calendar year, but the last two years of good films. It's a pared down festival, so they can be more selective. Mm. And National was right last week. We've been, I've seen mostly competition films. In fact, all competition films and the competition films are very strong. With a few exceptions, which we'll talk about later, the competition films have been the highlights of the festival for me. And also to note, uh, for those considering going or have going, the festival is COVID safe. They're very clear on check-ins and wearing masks. Um, there was a comment by Nishen at Petit Maman last night, the first week we were talking about just encouraging people ensuring that they do wear masks and it remains a COVID safe event. The festival um, are putting themselves out there and putting themselves the, for a major, major event almost immediately after the states opened up. So they're asking people to um, observe those guidelines. Certainly we're doing it. Certainly we're seeing people being safe and encouraging people to do so, but it is a COVID safe event for those who are concerned with that dimension of going. I trust that they're doing everything they can. Quickly, before we cover the Sydney Film Festival News of the Week, the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival continues online and then in cinemas from next Thursday. The British Film Festival is currently screening at Palace Cinemas around the country, including in Sydney. At least Static Vision have an event, El Planetar, tonight as part of the Sydney Film Festival, and the Italian Film Festival continues to screen around the country. The first film we're talking about at the Sydney Film Festival was Petit Maman. We caught the Australian premiere last night at the State Theatre. It is the follow-up from Shalin Schiama, the director of Portrait of Lady on Fire, which we covered a couple of years back. It is a very, it's not a big flashy film. It is a film about a family. It is a film about grief, and it is a film about intergenerational experiences and memory relayed between um, young, by young actresses, but also um, some adults um, who also play a large role in their life. It is the short, very phenomenal, it's a 72 minute film, one of the shorter ones of the festival. It's perfectly fine to tell a good story, compact, know that it's get in, get out, which they certainly did. I really liked this film. I thought it was a worthwhile exploration of grief and how families can relate to each other intergenerationally. Importantly, you see a lot of films where they are aimed at children with adults in mind. So they're made for children, but then adults can, it's because it's accessible to adults. This is the other way around. This is a film made for adults that is accessible to children. I really appreciated the maturity of that and the novelty of that. I think it's a great film. Well, it's not exceptionally similar to this. I understood the reason why a number of reviews when this film premiered at Berlinale made the comparison to My Neighbor to Toro. It's a less innocent and less childish film than that but it has a similarly completely pared back simplicity in both the compositions and the child imagination kind of nature of the film. It's entirely emotionally direct um, and it's a slow kind of sink your mind into the framework of a child's imagination kind of story. 
it takes its time and whatever magic Skiyama is doing is so subconscious that you don't even really know that she's doing it. You know, as I was watching this film, I was thinking, how is, how is this working? How, how is such a simple approach to the narrative having such an emotional impact on me? But it's just great artistry. She's entirely sincere. And the, the camera work, the unaffected, non-actorish performances of the kids and the basic emotional truths that are not buried within this narrative, but completely coursing through it in and under the surface. I just so simply and elegantly expressed that this film just keeps sneaking up on you and hitting you. Um, though it's been less of an issue this year, at every film festival, you always see these art movies that are a basic concept for a short film that goes on for way too long. And I often say, if it was going to be a feature, how about 60 to 75 minutes? Hallelujah. This film ends at exactly the right time. It does. To have said everything it needs to be said and quietly it's devastated. It's beautiful symbolic moments. It's the better symbolism that was of films like Where the Wild Things Are. And I just appreciated that this is a film that parents can bring their kids to, but kids, irrespective of age, can also bring their parents to. Hmm. And the other thing which is very important to notice is that this is a follow-up after Portrait of Lady on Fire, that, you know, she follows it up with such a simple film where she could have asked for a much uh, bigger budget, could have made a much more flashier film. Hmm. But artistically, she goes for a much more simpler film as a follow-up film after that. Hmm. I think that says... Hey, what it's made. Yeah, this yeah. is expanding on the technique of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but taking it entirely in a non-ego-driven direction. It's not just about, I'm, you know, the pretentious step of, I need to make my masterpiece. This is getting even deeper into characters through simplicity and payback aesthetic and narrative approach. Beautiful. But they, basically the things you love from Portrait are still here anyway. I mean, you still have a very dramatic film, mm -hmm. which is focusing on uh, minimal characters and not many characters to, to play with. In fact, the two kids mostly taking up most of the screen time. And they might not have given, you know, the best child performances, but for this film, I think they were perfect. I thought so, they were good. Uh, I, was, I was very satisfied with the child actors. It's very, it's a big risk um, in any film um, putting forward actors who both aren't named actors, but also um, are young age. And it, it paid, I think it paid off. And, and it's not just one actor, but it's two actresses who are front and center for the vast majority of the film. The emphasis is on them. It is a film uh, about children. I think that you know, in the language of many films focused on adolescence, uh, but very few that I think are quite as good as this. I can't imagine that this isn't coming to theaters later, right? I can't so imagine either. We'll have more to say. But Please. you can catch it Friday night at the Hayden Orpheum at 6.15. And it's the next screening. Otherwise, we believe it will be. It, it'll get to cinemas, and it certainly should. It has to, right? School holiday for sure, time? For sure. Surely. The next film we're talking about is Flea, uh, a film we also think could be in cinemas, and I, which I think personally could very well win the Sydney Film Prize. It's also in the official competition. It is from director Johannes Pocharasmussen about Amin Nawabi, a friend of his who is the subject of the film. It is an animation based on an interview he did with Nawabi. Nawabi is, was a refugee who went from Afghanistan through to Europe. The film relates his journey and that of his family's experiences. It is told in a number of languages, including Danish, English, Russian, Swedish, and Dari, a bit of which I understood was nice to hear. Tisha to the uh, wonderful use of language in this movie. I really, really liked this film. It's rare use, it's not rare, but it's uncommon you see 
animations so uniquely tuned to particular situations and so varied throughout the film. So a lot of animation doesn't ever get the eyes quite right. This did, and sometimes by for really emotional scenes by not showing the eyes, I really enjoyed that. The approach to animation, it's also very Euro comic book inspired, and you know you could compare this film in some ways to something like Persepolis, but it's also very very anime inspired in um, the way that the eyes are drawn, the way that sometimes they're hidden in order to bring out the emotional impact. I thought a lot about Japanese approaches to animation watching this, and while it, it's not an anime ripoff or something, it's also distinctly European. Um, regarding its treatment of how asylum seekers are treated and the experiences and procedural aspects that they go through, um, I worked in the space for a number of years, and um, a lot of it rings really true, how it can be such an intimidating process, particularly for young persons. Uh, we're, we're showing a character here, uh, a lot of their experience of the film where they are under 18 years of age, where it can be very confronting, where language barriers can be particularly confronting. And just, again, the procedural aspects this film goes through, showing how um, a diary speaker was paired with an interpreter who didn't uh, have the who didn't match his dialect. I've seen this happen in multiple interviews and it is a very serious issue. And um, to see this portrayed on screen, and I think a film that um, is broadly accessible, I think was really good. Look, I think I convinced uh, both of you guys to watch the film. I don't think you guys had this in your original radar. So I'm glad I did because I'm glad both of you liked it. I think I both of you liked it. Oh, but, very much so. uh, what I really loved about the film was, A, it's taking up a subject which is often discussed in cinema, uh, but it's doing it in a way which is quite novel. Uh, I love the animation, which I thought was particularly done for this film. So it's not like any other style of animation, which, you know, even though the charcoal sketches and drawings, which were uniquely suited to draw the horrors of the emotional sequences, and then doing, basically, the there is a stop-start nature to the animation, which is interesting, because the sketches come through, it is almost as if the psychological journey of uh, Nawabi is being portrayed to the charcoal sketches and they're actually being drawn in real time. So there is a beautiful nature of the animation which flows through and sometimes you feel like they are being constructed on screen as if the story is at the same time, yeah, to relate to the memory. It's very beautiful, but also at the same time, uh, the film I think is very true to life and actually had some of the important facts of the, the, the journey uh, yeah. being too emotional at the same time. Yeah, there was a particular animation, though I think it was very emotional, I think it earned those experiences. Um, a very haunting sequence that takes place underwater, a train underwater, um, a very good sequence where a boat encounters another boat. I just have to touch on a, a unusual mention of this film, I think Australian audiences might not pick up on. Uh, this is um, set and ex experienced in and around Norway and that a particular sequence is where two ships confront each other. Let's never forget that Tampa happened just 20 years ago and Tampa was a Norwegian freighter. So there is a dimension to this movie that is particularly relevant. And I think we're particularly resonant for Australian audiences. So another dimension uh, we haven't even touched on is um, the main character's queer identity, which I think is very empathetically handled. Um, there's a particular scene that takes place later in the film, which I absolutely adored. And I, and this, this, and this is a particular experience that um, many persons who are asylum seekers will express their sexual identities for the first time once they are out of certain countries or when they arrive in certain countries or certain individuals. It's a, in addition to the persecution they've experienced, it's a particularly um, harrowing aspect to realize this part of your identity. I think this film showed a true to life story and showed a particular experience, a particular experience of a person which um, is emblematic of what people around the world experience. And um, I applaud the film for that.
I basically just have to reiterate everything you guys said. I also really love the film. Um, but there's an avalanche of political films which are designed to lecture you about an issue that you see at film festivals. Here's a film that is completely lacking in that kind of pretension because it comes from true to life experience. And it's just about generating empathy by clearly outlining one person's perspective of the experiences of being a refugee and of discovering their identity and of going up against incredible adversity and oppression. Um, so it, on that level, great. It was beautiful because uh, for in the beginning, Nawabi was very clear that he didn't want to tell the story. So I think how the story unfolds feels quite natural because the details are uncovered as we go along. They're not rehearsed. It doesn't feel like Nawabi is entirely comfortable at every stage. In fact, the story is uh, quite organic in that sense because as Nawabi gets more comfortable telling the story, we get more and more details as well to, to what's happening. So actually it felt like a narrative was unfurling in real time. So we're discovering the details as Nawabi is getting more and more comfortable telling them. So from an ethical point of view, I think it's also very well handled in terms and, of how to tell the story as well. And I think finally, from my perspective on this film, uh, a lot of films that are biographies or animation or otherwise that do not uh, physically show the protagonist or key to life figure, there's a convention that, you know, in the credits or else they show them the way this is handled at the end of the film. Notably, there are instances where we see real life documentary footage, the way this perspective is handled, I really like, I won't say more. That is Flea, um, it's excellent. It probably will get a cinema release. We'll then if again, at the Ritz at four o'clock on Saturday, go see it. It could win the Sydney Film Prize. Yeah. The next film we are talking about is Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, uh, starring Oscar Isaac, which I will be seeing at Event Cinema's George Street on Friday night. So we won't talk about it for too long because, uh, you know, we'll give more coverage after Glenn's seen it. And you never know, maybe this one will get a release here, unlike um, uh, First Reformed, because, uh, you know, this one involves guns and thriller type elements on some level. However, it's really yeah, it's a slow pretty burn. mainstream, actually. Yeah, I was, I was It is, yeah, it's mainstream, but it's the kind of mainstream that I want more of. I was thinking about this movie last night, and I was thinking, Paul Schrader has continued to make 70s American New Hollywood films, but updating the style to keep up with the present. This is the spirit of 70s, let's talk about a political issue, let's do it in an in interesting filmmaking style, Let, um, let's make it engaging um, through you using genre elements. This is like a classic Paul Schrader-ish story, but um, engaged with political themes of the time. And it's amazing that, uh, you know, of now, um, as First Reformed was, this film is touching on the issue of the failures of the American um, legal system and their military to address structural faults because it involves the inability to punish the guides for the Abu Ghraib um, atrocities rather than um, scapegoating those who were caught up in it and caught on, on photos. Um, but it addresses this, again, as I, we said about the, the uh, last film, not in a luxury uh, type way, um, in, but in a different way, through an engaging um, genre narrative. And it becomes more about, rather than specific political gripes, those are, those are deeply embedded in the narrative. It becomes, in a classic Paul Schrader fashion, a story about hope and redemption versus guilt and self-sabotage and self-sacrifice. And I was really moved by it. The, the overwhelming narrative about this, this movie since it premiered, even among the positive reviews has been, oh, well, it's not as good as First Reformed, to which I say, who cares? As a follow-up to First Reformed, this is showing a director in fine form and it's a massive comeback for Paul Schrader to the highs of earlier in his career. 
Um, I think this is really, really good. I think this is, for me, this is probably the best Hollywood film of the year. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think the best Hollywood film is probably the good caveat to use. Uh, it, it's still... I I mean, well, for me, it's not so much a caveat. I really liked it. Yeah. What did so you think thing, have with it? We'll talk about this more when Glenn's seen it, but in brief, I guess. I think, look, the, I agree with the fact that it's, it, it is dealing with political films and it's a political film in sense without it being too lectury. But at the same time, uh, I did feel uh, it was limited by uh, its design in terms of where it's trying to say and what it's trying to do. And I think the conceit was overpowering the message at some point in time. So we will talk about it when Glenn has seen it, but I feel the design of the film actually limits the film rather than actually enhances the film. So I felt like, you know, the way Schrader has designed it in terms of structurally and what he's trying to do, the conceit, is almost too clever. And I think it takes precedence over what he's trying to do. It is an interesting, strange clash of elements. Um, and maybe it, this kind of slow burn narrative, which is mostly character build up with not much plot progression until the end of the film might've worked better in the prestige TV format. But you know, I'm enjoying watching films that get over and out in two hours and tell me a story. And at the end of this, I was really moved. So I uh, have to recommend the card counter, and I can't wait to talk more yeah, about it. I mean, I'd, I'd recommend it as well. I'm not saying I didn't, I did, I disliked it, but based on all the other films I've seen the, at the festival, this is low on that list because every film at the festival is so good. It's been shockingly good. It's been yeah. good. It's been it's been a good run. Uh, the card counter screening at nine o'clock at Event Cinemas George Street on Friday night. The next film we're talking about is in cinemas tomorrow. They had its Australian premiere at the festival on Friday night. Uh, Ron and I were there. The Power of the Dog, the new Jane Campion film. We're doing a preliminary review because we'll cover it in more detail um, following the cinema release. It is starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plenums, and Cody Smith McPhee. It is set in Montana in the 1920s. It is about a um, very domineering manager of a ranch played by Cumberbatch and his relationship with his elder brother played by Plenums <coughs> and Kirsten Dunst who um, runs a restaurant homestead on the, uh, in, on the on the broader property in the broader area and it is about masculinity and a changing era. I think notably Campion has very cleverly set the film in 25 because this is a period now like the 1910s a little bit earlier which is really not quite but is really falling out of living memory so there's an eeriness to this because there's a feeling that we can't experience this it feels like a full-on period piece i loved this film's exploration of masculinity um, a film we talked about a few years mother that i did not like was one that was very heavily on particular types of symbolism this uses with similar symbolism. Some I think is very effective, some is not, um, particularly the use of dirt in this film, I found exceptional. Um, I'm gonna say that this is my favorite performance from Cumberbatch. He's a very charismatic, very endearing. It's my second favorite performance from Kirsten Dunn's a very underrated actress. My favorite is Melancholia, though I like The Power of the Dog significantly more. Um, I like Cody Smith. The only bad thing I would say about this film is that I love Jesse Plan, who's excellent in this as he is in everything but he's shortchanged in that he moves from being a character to a plot device throughout the film. I think that's an example of poor writing, but it's the only real detraction in me what I thought was a very good film I'd recommend. Yeah, I, I think I agree with almost everything. In fact, I think between this and Flea, 
this could also, I think this is in the competition, right? Yeah, so this I, think, also, I, I think the, this could also win. Could also I, wouldn't, win I wouldn't be opposed if it did win. In fact, actually, we'll have to put this caveat up after every competition film. This could also win the film prize because actually they're all pretty They all could. Good. I was thinking that while you were saying it. There's, there's good justifications for almost all the competition films I've seen to win. Like none of them are going to upset me. It's just going to be interesting to see what they pick. But in terms of that, firstly, let's uh, categorize. This is going to be, an, this is a Netflix release. And in terms of Netflix films, I think this is their big prestige slash art house crossover film for this of, year. Oh wait, is it a Netflix release, not a cinema release? It's both. Um, Transmission oh. co Transmission um, had already bought, I think, Australian rights to the film because it's an Australian co-production before Netflix got on board. And so they're sharing the Australian release, which means we get it one week earlier than other countries in the world in cinemas. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting that way, but I, I do feel, uh, Hey, I'm really glad Campion got the money to make it. And, you know, people are championing directors like Jim Campion to tell the stories they want to tell. Uh, And it it is very much still a biblical story. The allegories are quite strong in that sense. But still, at the same time, uh, I I loved uh, the 20s in that sense and how it's explored are very different to what we've been seeing on screen. The use of dirt, as Glenn has mentioned, uh, and Cumberbatch giving a much more grounded performance, which I did not think he was capable of because I did think... He was getting into a rut of playing eccentric characters too much. And I did think he was actually, uh, you know. Underwritten characters, I'd say. This is a well-written character. We haven't even talked about other aspects of this character, which I think are the most fascinating part, but we're not going to because. We're going to save that release. Yeah, yeah, this movie is coming out so soon. I'm going to catch it the first cheap Tuesday after the festival. Um, We can maybe talk about it in an episode after the festival comes out. And with the hype about the potential awards road for this film, I feel like we're going to keep hearing and talking about this one for a while. It I mean, I mean picture by the sound of things. Not that I care, but it, it could win Best Picture. Yeah, no, it's not it that could. that would be a seal of quality, but it is interesting if a good movie sticks around in the conversation like Parasite did, for example. Uh, I mean, uh, Chris, I know you said kind of was your favorite Hollywood kind of film in that sense. This, this would be yours? This, this would be mine, I think, this year. Yeah, I think it's... It's so cleverly done that it's balancing artistic elements with commercial mainstream uh, performers, but also commercial mainstream uh, ideas and uh, cinematography in that sense. It's very accessible. People are going to love it. Still has something to say. Still cerebral. Forces you to engage. It's not passive at all. So I think people will enjoy it and it's going to be fun. Well, I'll see it and uh, we can discuss it properly. Have a proper The power of the film. <laughs> in cinemas from tomorrow. The next film we're talking about is the film that opened the Sydney Film Festival here out west. It is a Sydney produced film from eight filmmakers. It's an anthology film, including Von Patiak, my old roommate. Um, <laughs> and it is not in cinemas. Uh, sorry, it is, no, no, sorry, there are no screenings at the festival anymore, but um, it may very well come to cinemas soon. It has a it's coming uh, on 3rd of February, 2022. 3rd of February. Okay, there you go. Right. Yeah, so I caught this at opening night, uh, which was uh, nice uh, to watch. It's, I think uh, the experience of watching an opening night film at Sydney Film Festival was probably the overwhelming feeling of relief. Oh my God, we're back at cinemas. People are there. They, you know, everyone else was there was acknowledging and it was a nice atmosphere to catch a film about Western Sydney. 
and we were debating whether or not I live in Western Sydney uh, you last night. <laughs> Apparently, uh, I still think I do, but uh, Glenn was adamant that I don't because I'm you haven't crossed the Red Rooster line, man. I'm sorry, That's I lived real Sydney uh, truth. I actually did grow up very close to where I grew up. It was west of there, and that wasn't Western Sydney. That was that was literally borderline. So no, man. No. I, I I still I still hold my ground. I live eight minutes from Parramatta, which is very much Western Sydney, which means by extension, oh, when I grew up, it wasn't eight minutes in Parramatta. <laughs> But which I still feel it was Sydney. Anyway, what I was trying to get at was it was nice to see my people on screen, but clearly I can't say that because they can't live in Western Sydney. But uh, look, Hero West is an anthology film with eight stories. It's 101 minutes and they have to pack eight stories in. It's a lot. It actually feels overstuffed, but that's always a challenge in anthology films, whether or not you can tell as many stories as you want. I really did feel you could cut probably tell five or six of those stories and pack out at one time and actually tell them uh, with a bit more breathing room and a bit more space. But still, it, given the fact that we got to see those stories on screen, they were quite inventive. They broke the structure quite well. And I did think they didn't fall into the trap of doing the sameness thing, which a lot of anthology films end up doing, is that, you know, they can't, they don't know how to break up the structure and tell the stories. They were all very different as well. You have different languages and different cultures coming together. And it is set up in a fictional town called Sunny Hold, but well, it's basically Blacktown. <laughs> it's basically Blacktown. Why would you make up a suburb name? The 660 suburbs in Sydney. Especially when the title is, this is about Western Sydney. And then it's like, oh, it's about Sunny Hold. I shouldn't put on that dumb voice. I haven't seen the movie. It actually sounds pretty good and better than I expected. It's just bloody set in power, like bloody hell. Yeah. The good, the good thing about it is, you know. They try uh, to troll uh, inner city <laughs> folks. Like, oh yeah, Sunny Hold, we've been there, yeah. <laughs> but, that, but that's the thing I, I felt like that no one from the west will see this anyway it's just going to be those snobby film festival types that, that, that's right. double day i'm actually that's very it. curious how this will uh play come february actually, and where this will play look uh chris and i were we were at the rich screening not not of this film of another film called cow which we'll discuss later on uh and uh, we had a screening of here at west at the same time and i could tell you i could guarantee uh ritz randwick became Western Sydney for at least an hour and a half because I think the entirety of Western Sydney was there to watch the film. Fortunately, yeah, because they weren't going to go to the opening night, you know, that, that's the, the SFF set, but, you know, the, the frequent travellers. But fortunately, no, okay. this film also showed a Casula powerhouse. But, uh, yeah. I, I mean, to, to in SFF's opening night defence, it was by invitation only, apparently. Yeah, so they couldn't that's what I mean when I said the SFF out. set. Yeah. No, so no the invitation only. Ever. Yeah. If it's no, no. I think that, it's a COVID that. thing. I think it was before they knew that they could go to 100% capacity. I'll cut them some slack on this one, even though I, okay. it's not yeah, a good in, Okay, in fairness, really. if it's an anthology film, there's any number of filmmakers in their hmm. circles who want to come. I can, sure, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say this in. I'm there are other screenings to meet demand, and it seems there were. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm going to say this. I think this was one of the better opening night films in recent memory. Of the Sydney Film Festival. I have never had any luck with opening night films at Sydney Film Festival. I've always categorically thought they've all been bad in recent memory, as much as I think. This wasn't bad. And I think this is as much as I would like to say. I have a detailed review of it coming out on Screen Hub very soon. So if you want a detailed write up, that's uh, going to be going up. But yeah, you're at West, it's going to be in cinema in February. Go watch it if you're from Western Sydney or otherwise. So coming into the podcast, we're going to be talking about 
There is no evil. Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. The worst person in the world. Hit the road. Memoria. Never gonna snow again. Cow from the wild sea. Taming the garden. Covada Saida. Hive City Hall. Slalom Pleasure and Zola. Some of which we'll be covering later once others have seen them. Others which we'll be covering come later on in the year and next year when they get cinema releases. Uh, we're gonna be. There's a few films I'm excited for coming up. Catching the French Dispatch, as mentioned, the Card Counter. Doing um, the Swordsman. Doing Titan. Uh, on Saturday, which I'm very, very excited about. What's everyone seeing the next couple of days? Uh, my, my Friday's looking very packed, so I'm doing... I'm my car, Friday. I'm really excited because I'll explain why when on the, shortly on the podcast, we talk about Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy from the same director. Yep. Uh, so Friday, I'm doing A Hero, a hardy new Fahadi film, which I'm excited for. Parallel Mothers, uh, which is me on Mother Mother, I'm excited for. Then Drive My Car. And, and also, uh, then The French Dispatch on Sunday. I've, I've rearranged my schedule. I can't miss out on the closing. I, I want to see the French Dispatch. I want to see closing out too. I actually want to know who wins. I want to know exactly. who wins this year. I'll be seeing you guys there. But um, there's a lot of exciting movies still to come. Compartment number six, I'm looking forward to. Um, it's good. It's good. Uh, even Paris 13th District, I'm kind of curious to check out, even though I don't expect great things. But Cillian Scamaco wrote it. You never know. So um, subscribe to the podcast for um, the many more reviews to come. We'll be back next week covering more Sydney Film Festival and in subsequent weeks, No Time to Die and Last Night in Soho. Chris and I have seen No Time to Die more on, following the Sydney Film Festival. That's right. And more on Power of the Dog and Zola, some of the films opening in cinemas immediately after the festival or during it in the case of Power of the Dog. Yeah, and No Time to Die, for those who are not at the City Film Festival, otherwise want to catch a film between events, Cinemas, George Street, City Film Festival screenings, is in cinemas tomorrow. Go see a City Film Festival film. Take a chance on a few things. Enjoy yourself. Watch some of the big ticket items. Um, it is a safe festival. They put a lot of effort in this year. Um, it is exciting, and we highly recommend, uh, while it's on until Sunday night, that you seek it out. Welcome back to Film Fight Club. Uh, the first one we're talking about is one Veron and Chris have seen, There Is No Evil. I wanted to see a few of these, however, um, personal circumstances have got in the way. I am looking forward to seeing more films over the coming days. And also what we didn't mention is On Demand. There are a lot of films on demand. Um, That's right. the, the first one I'll be watching is one I had to but had to miss, um, The Justice of Bunny King. Me too. I, I wanted to see it but couldn't catch it either, but I'm loving that it's on demand. So yeah, the first film that's coming up is There Is No Evil, and it's also screening on Friday night at Chevelle. And is on demand uh, as well. So if you can't make that Friday night screening, consider this uh, something to whet your appetite for some of the great things that are going to be available on the online component of the Sydney Film Festival. So this is an anthology film by Mohamed Rasalouf, um, great Iranian filmmaker, banned from making films in, in Iran, but... Uh, you know, his previous film was shot in the Czech Republic, but this looks like Iran. I like, love how Iranian yeah. directors have gotten more crafty about slipping under the radar and digital technology makes it possible. You know, I really liked the gritty and raw digital cinematography in this movie that looks like something you could do with cheap little equipment that you could uh, bring with you places. And yet it's completely lacking the overly plastic look I've started to complain about all the time in contemporary Hollywood or um, indie productions shot on digital. Somehow they're, they're just like mostly unadorned with like just the right amount of little like fill lighting here and there to create some contrast looks gorgeous. Um, particularly the first story has some incredible cinematography. Um, but on that note, what did you think of that first story, Varad? 
I, I really love the first story. I think the first story is the strongest in the film. Also, it's the most unassuming uh, because mm. uh, honestly, while you're watching the first story, most of the time you're wondering, why is he telling the story? Like, what's it's so it? mundane. Yeah. It's like slow it's cinema, but applied to a story. There's interesting, like there's enough texture there that it's so engaging despite being a basically totally uninteresting story. But there's, yeah. you, there's an interesting family dynamic that's just being observed. And then this, this is built, think, this is the build the up for of, an incredible yeah. payoff or to, I, I saw someone talking about Memoria use the word punchline. Similar to Memoria, this opening story has an incredible, um, to use a word a bit ironically, punchline. Um, yeah. We need to, we should explain what this movie is about. I said it was an anthology film, but I didn't explain. It's not like, it's not like is, West. It's not an anthology film like that. So it's, no, and the stories it, it, interrelate to each other, either narratively or thematically in really in a, like a compare and contrast kind of way, it's building a philosophical point. Um, so it's, so it's looking at, I think we can give give away that yes. much. It's looking at the death penalty from yes. different perspectives of the people, whether they are at the receiving end mm -hmm. or they are at the at the giving out mm -hmm. end, the oppressor or the oppressee. That's right. That sense. Yeah. I was expecting a film about how it's just fundamentally ugly and inhumane um, to for the state to kill somebody. Like, for example, another famous anti-death penalty film, short film about killing by Krzysztof Kieslowski. But this is interesting because it approaches it from a fresh, different angle, which is the way that the um, Revolutionary Guard of Iran um, are forced to execute prisoners, uh, and they can do so for further favor. Um, and how is this conditioning people? How does this make people accept authority? Um, how are people bullied or coerced into doing it? Is this, what does this do to a person's soul? And Russell, over the course of multiple stories, builds up a picture where it's a no-win situation, where you end up being destroyed if you comply or if you choose not to comply. Um, it, so, and uh, the, the line, a line that really sums up this film, around midway through, a character says, your power is in saying no. This is, a, this is I don't think every story is as good, I would say that, you know, though it ends up being for, for an amazing purpose, the first story, though it has a lot of great texture and images, is a little boring, um, but by design. No, I know, yeah. The yeah. first story, I feel like, uh, had the most impact because, hey, it was so boring by design that when the payoff comes, you're like, oh, hang on, I have to rewatch the entirety of the thing because... Hearing like, the person, like yeah, hearing the person behind me gasp as we transition to the next story and kind of like have to have to like readjust in the seat. It's so good to watch films with an audience and a packed crowd, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, the, the next two, but the, the genius of following up the most um, slow story with the most pulse pounding thriller-esque yeah. story. And the, the third story is terrific. Um, the third story is an, again, another slow burn, which has a moment of profound empathy, um, the, just a deeply upsetting moment that really has stayed with me. The final story is, I think, a not so much by design, um, a little bit boring. I know boring is such a, you know, I mean, like it's, it's like a like, rube comparison, rube it, it, complaint. It's, but slow, it's slow and you don't really know, and Rothlov holds his cards close to his chest. Yeah. You don't, the really, final, know, you don't yeah. really know what his point is until he makes his point. And right then at the end. You know. And the, um, the final story is moving. It did sneak up on me, um, it did work. But I didn't like it as much as the other stories because it, similarly to, um, it reminded me a little bit of an Asghar Fahadi type narrative approach where I feel like his conceits, which were fresh around the time of like um, about Ellie and a separation are starting to feel a little bit contrived. 
And uh, watching this and the way it comes out, I, I felt like it was, it was a little bit, though there's a deep emotional undercurrent to it that comes out, it was a little bit too intellectualized, a little bit too contrived. And as a result, it's kind of a shame to close out with probably the weakest story overall. If you look at the three stories all together, I still think- Three or four, they, because two they, are linked. Yeah, they had, you know, all of them had certain uh, drawbacks to them. None of them was particularly stronger than the other. They had different, by design, different payoffs. Like I agree. I, I, would, I just thought that the payoff and the moment of heightened emotion of the, uh, the final story um, wasn't, at, maybe was a little bit too luxury, maybe wasn't as precise as the other ones, but it still moved me. I, you know, I, I'm not saying it's bad, but uh, it's, it's structuring these, these anthology uh, films is very difficult. Yeah, and I, and I think uh, if we compare that with Here Art West, I think this uh, was the right approach in terms of A, thematically structuring it, B, uh, the right amount of storytelling, the right amount of stories, you know, three stories or two and, and then plus one was mm. right. And also just generally building toward the thesis. By the end of it, uh, this had the same impact like a Kozlovsky film without me getting preached at and realizing that, okay, how the death penalty works in Iran, within that context, I thought. Because, you know, that social context was so important to me. Mm. Because without that, it just becomes a film about the death penalty. But yeah, and that's and, but fine, it, but that's not the film I would want to watch. But it's, as I said before, it's about specifics of the way the death penalty is integrated into the society in Iran, what that says about the society and what that does to the people in it. Yeah. Um, so I, another level really appreciated it. And the and next film we're going to talk about is... Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. That's right. It's a good segue because uh, this is also an anthology film. Um, uh, Glenn, are you checking out now? Is it about time for Glenn to... to... Yes, I'm, I'm popping out. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Um, yeah. And I look forward to more movies. Many, yeah, many we more look, movies. I'm really looking forward to, to uh, another club meeting where we can uh, discuss them more with you. But uh, as we said before, Glenn's super busy. Um, so me and Brad have been able to see way more movies and also continue on into the podcast for longer. Uh, we won't hold you up, man. See you at the festival. It's okay. Uh, we um, still love Glenn, though, by the way. Uh, it's not that we don't love Glenn, but we're not kicking him out. He's going by his own accord. We need to make this clear on the radio because I, it's only our voices. I can come to back to the treehouse, right? Clubhouse. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Otherwise, You're I'm setting up a branch in the Cumberbatch style, and I'm not like living <laughs> near it. Um, no, it's no Glenn's club, but there might be room for one one. It's I've I've heard this somewhere before. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm keen. I'm keen to get into the card counter. I'm super keen to see Titan after. Actually, just just to note before I go, um, the mainstream press coverage of the festival has been an article in the SMH talking about how there have been people reportedly fainting at Titan, and I'm curious. Uh, this is something we can cover once we have seen the film. But there's been mm. every year controversy of some sort, and this year it's Titan, of course. Once 16, you as you said, film. how how do they know? Last night, as you said, how do you know 16 people? Like, uh, we spoke to someone who said, I would have doubted it, except I, I sat next to one of the people who passed out. But that still raises the question of how do they know it was 16? Maybe, I guess they had 16 people, it's possible, come and report it to the boy, to the uh, staff. I mean, you would report it happened if someone actually passed out next to you, right? You might worry if they had a heart condition, if you're a good person. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Um, maybe we'll hear more about this. And maybe we'll get a chance to ask Nishan personally. And but we definitely will be covering the Palm d'Or winner, dear God. It's coming to cinemas November 25th. I'm going to catch it after the festival because I, it was sold out or I couldn't make the other screenings work.
but I'm super keen to talk about this movie with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you guys are talking about it because I'm not keen to talk about it. I don't like Queasy or, or, or you know, Hara, Corey Hara. Or, or, so, yeah. You've seen it? No. No, you haven't seen it. No. Okay. I had a ticket. But I, I haven't seen it. Oh, yeah. so I'm the one covering, I'll, I'll be doing this at the Film Festival Garage of Daitan. Okay, no worries. Yeah. And then we'll, uh, me and you can expand on it further on a later episode of the show. Oh, absolutely. By um, the way, um, yeah, it'll definitely play at the Radwick Ritz um, because uh, the owners of the Ritz Cinema are distributing it. First, oh. The first film they're releasing in cinemas. A nice step. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and just while we're on cinema releases, to only momentarily depart from this, while we will be covering No Time to Die in two weeks, I'm just going to say one thing, it's mostly good. Me, yeah, I agree with that. I saw it. this basically as part of my Sydney Film Festival marathon. And uh, yeah, the first 90 minutes, great. It's a shame that it's three hours long, almost. Bond mm-hmm. films haven't shown in this movie that they, despite attempts at being epic, can justify that. They could, mm-hmm. I think theoretically they could, but it's not this film. But anyway, I'm getting we'll ahead of myself. We'll greatly elaborate on this. We will. I'll see you guys soon. Bye, bye, man. So, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, another... Um, uh, another anthology film, three stories. It's 120 minutes and they all seem to end right about on the dot at 40 minutes. Restrictions are good, in my opinion. These stories uh, have just enough breathing room. Um, they're like great one-act plays. I they found- really were. I, I think they were longer than shorts, but shorter than a feature. Hmm. But I love the simplicity with how with Hamaguchi approaches the storytelling where he's hmm. like, here's what the details you need to know. Here's what you don't need to know. And that's gonna be fine. And I think there is a comfort in knowing a filmmaker who withholds details but doesn't cheat you. Because he's like, this is beautifully written. Yes, I thought this was beautifully written. And something that speaks well to the um, the quality of this film is that um, everyone I've spoken to has had a different favorite film. It's it is not unlike other anthology films, it doesn't have entries that I think are far and away better than the others. I think everyone will have a favorite or ones that they think are are better, but I don't think it's like this one was weak to me compared to, maybe I'm wrong, but for the most part, everyone I've spoken to has been like, they're all good, but but this one was my favorite. Yeah. And And it's always a different one. Each person has a different favorite. For me, I think it was the third one. And for you, I think it was the second one, right? So we, we, even though we're very similar in the taste of cinema and Mm. we both recommend the same film, I think our favorite segments within the same film would be very different. See, I don't know that it was the second one, but the second one was, was a quite unique, a story I haven't seen told before. Um, and, uh, you know, the build-up. This movie held my attention incredibly throughout. This that didn't wasn't really like the slow... This is very dialogue-heavy, but this wasn't like the slow cinema build-up build feeling where it's like, okay, what are you doing? And then the punchline hits. Like, this builds up um, gradually in emo- and holds your attention more and more with the emotional control. This movie, to uh, explain the title, The Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, is three stories, um, all with female lead characters revolving around their romantic lives and their romantic desires and fantasies, right? It crucially involves coincidences. But the great thing about the coincidences in these films are they're the kind of coincidences that happen in real life. It's not too far-fetched. I I was thinking when I I saw some of the um, distressing or interesting coincidences, I thought at some point, not exactly as interesting and worthy of making a film about as this, but at certain points in my life, I've been in that situation. You know, like these yeah. kinds of coincidences happen. I think, look, uh, in terms of coincidences, uh, in the third segment, you have that uh, about a high school reunion party or a school reunion, essentially. Mm. And the coincidence there was very, very realistic. 
Mm, exactly. exactly. It's something that I often think because, A, if you haven't seen someone in a long period of time, you don't really remember what they look like. There, Let's not spoil is, it. Let's not spoil it. Yeah. So there, there is an element of like, okay, if you're meeting someone in the reunion, there is a possibility of what happened in the story that this could it happen. It happened to me at a cinema. I spoke with someone for ages who thought I was somebody else. And I, I kind of like snuck away um, so that I would yeah, have- Yeah, and from celebrities, uh, we hear these stories all the time where they think Brad Pitt is Matt Damon or Matt Damon is Brad Pitt or whatever. Yeah, and, the other, yeah. exactly, it happens. And the, especially when you're looking for something, you see it reflected in the world around you, which I think is the broader theme here. When, you know, if you need it and you want it, um, yeah. you know? The, the, the first, I, yeah. And there, I, I felt like there were, there were three very distinct that's right. Answers to that as to like, you know, manifesting what you want into the world. Yes. Right. Where and like, it, do it, you it, accept the wheel of fortune and its role in, in your life where suddenly you don't get what you were looking for, but maybe what's being handed to you could be a beautiful thing if you're just open to it. That's yeah. a message that comes across uh, in this. Yeah. And magic happens. In, 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 the in the first film, in the magic film, in the first film, it's, it's, it's possibly whether or not uh, you don't accept it and you just want what you want and mm. there's a level of toxicity attached to it because mm. you are basically uh, trying to force your own will onto the wheel of fortune. Yeah, exactly. To what extent should you step back? I mean, I, mean, I, I know we're describing this in very wistful ways, but it is a very wistful film. Yeah. I think it's not, a, it's not a film which is about concrete things as such. It is more mm. about um, possibilities. It is what about, the heart wants. Yeah. But, you know, the mysteries of the heart, but it's the, a I, hopeful film. It is. There, there I, I found it tremendously I, I moving. In, 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 the, in the second uh, segment, there was this conversation which happened, which was so affirming. Mm. And I remember the character was crying and I felt and, very emotionally moved where me too. they were trying to, uh, 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 a kind of uh, teacher-like figure is trying to give very affirming lessons yeah. to someone else. And, and you know, about, that about story... What they, they believe that that they should believe in themselves rather than getting validation with exactly yeah but hamaguchi's humanism is so extraordinary this uh this this epiphany and this this shift in perspective comes out of a phenomenally ugly setup yes but um the good in in people wins out um the first story is the most conventional um but uh the way that it's handled is again super precise with the direction yeah. um Something that came to me watching this movie is that well, Hamaguchi I've seen, this is far and away the most Hong Sang-soo influenced in terms of- Yeah, like, yeah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> the conversational approach, the, the approach to relationships and the big tell that this guy had Hong Sang-soo on his mind was the few judicious, again, extremely precise use of crash zooms, breaking up these yes. simple, long conversations. Uh, you remember in the first segment, there is a very crash zoom with the- uh, Oh, amazing. The character has their hands close amazing. to their face. Amazing. That was and one of the- Beautiful crash zoom. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the finest moments of filmmaking of the year for me. I was just like, okay, I, I'm watching The Woman Who Ran, I'm watching Grass, this is, this yeah. is exactly that. Yeah, I, and, I and uh, right, that, right now, wrong then, in terms of some yeah. of the, the chants and uh, magic, you know, like fantastical, is it magic elements as well? No, it's not as far as that, but yeah. it, you know, you can see how you could be inspired by a film like that and put out something like this. And also like in terms of length, right? Hong Sang Su's cinema has gone shorter and shorter. Hmm. The, the, the magic, uh, the segment that we say, the 65 to 70 minute films, yeah. making, making that now. Yeah. And, and given he's, that- He's taking the ball and running are, with it, exploring yeah. that, that territory. Yeah. 
So given that all these segments are 40 minutes each, very much that, do a self-contained story, tell your story, no fluff, there's no, literally no fat to trim, editing is precise, perfect, tell your story, move on to the next. It's very kind of clean. It's yeah, beautifully elegant in its construction. Yeah. Which um, kind of feels like, you know, sometimes it can be mechanical, but you kind of feel like, oh, does it have your honesty or rawness to it? Actually, it does. And that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's why I, yeah, like in comparison to the Fahadi, like, um, aspects I saw in, uh, of like, this is a little bit too, um, maybe contrived in the last story and there is no evil. Despite this being about coincidences, it always felt organic to me. So that was the Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which had a lot of fortune, a little bit of fantasy, but it was fortunate for us that we could. Yeah, it was. But on the subject of uh, films about women in love, here is the worst <laughs> person in the world. Yeah, that was a nice segue, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, the title is very misleading, as you will find out in the film. Uh, well, it's interesting. Um, the poster for this movie has this, uh, you know, picture from when she's having this great moment of freedom and release and running and with a big smile on her face. And when I looked at that picture, I thought they're trying to, they're saying like, don't be, don't be thrown off by the title. Don't worry, guys, this movie, she's actually, look at how pretty and nice she is. And I was thinking they should have owned this title and featured a scene from her. I won't spoil more. Yeah. I was thinking like what image from this movie, if I could think of an, a single image that would convey something, work with the title, work on a poster and capture something more of the spirit of this film than this very ill-fitting poster. And I won't spoil the context of this image, but for me, the, the image they should have picked was our lead character, the, who possibly the aforementioned worst person in the world, in a kitchen, bleary-eyed in the morning, with yeah. some bloody face paint on her face, with, yeah. a, with a rug wrapped around her shoulders, looking sheepishly confused with her boyfriend kind of laughing at her and offering yeah. her a coffee. That's, that picture sums up the movie. That picture sums up this concept of the worst person in the world, making mistakes. This yeah. is a deep, this movie's going to come out on Boxing Day. I told Glenn he'll love it. I'm telling everyone I speak to that they'll love it. This is my big recommended film of the Sydney Film Festival. Not because I think it's the best, but, but though I think it's Most extremely accessible. good. Most accessible. Because I think it, yeah, it's an exceptionally good mainstream film with enough of an artistic touch. Um, and it talks about universal human experience. So I feel like everyone can enjoy this. This is a great accessible film and it speaks to things tons of people are thinking about in the moment. It's, a, it's broadly been defined as a romantic comedy. It's about a, woman's, um, a woman being torn between two men, classic romantic comedy setup, but it explores the psychology of this relationship really deeply. And it does so with a visually poetic style that makes it feel really wistful and attuned to the kind of like peak moments in life. Yeah, I mean, I, I did a Twitter thread uh, after watching the film uh, where I was thinking about what are the things I was thinking while I was watching it. And I realized that what the film touches upon are some very real anxieties about living in postmodern life. Yeah. Right? Especially about you have uh, the entirety of the world telling you, or not you as an, as an us, but like you as in the second person, you, aka the, the younger generations, about A, how they should live their lives, B, what they're doing with their lives is completely wrong, and C, that we are lazy, we are uh, not hardworking, we don't deserve what we ask for, and that we're entitled, right? We have the entirety of the world telling us that we're basically pieces of the shit. The worst person in the world. That we are the worst people in the world, right? So that there is the worst, etc. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Generational warfare and the feeling of not fitting in the time are kind of a sub theme in this movie. Exactly, and I and I felt you know from that perspective, if you read the film like that, uh, the title is less. Uh, a title about somebody 
uh, you know, in the film as a character. The title is basically how we all feel. a wink, wink, a wink, wink, and a kind of nudge, nudge to how that is thrown around for an entire generation of people, right? That we are the worst, essentially. Yeah. So, and, and I felt like there was something very real about that because the film discusses generational anxiety in a very authentic way. There's a, there's a beautiful monologue by a character oh, yeah. about uh, how he feels trapped like, yeah. in, in, in a time capsule. I'll be, uh, I'll, 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 I'm going to I'm going to be be the dick and be like time 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 and try and move us along because uh we're going to have we've got so much to say about all these movies we're going to actually have to go into anyway, part okay. two. It's a but, film. but the it, reason it, I say that now is because it's coming yeah. on Boxing Day. Yeah. We're going to get into this and dig into yeah. those scenes. We have Basically, to do a spoiler discussion for this film because yeah. the twists and turns in this movie and the, the places it it goes uh, work enough to um, formula that mainstream audiences won't be thrown, but still in the way that they're handled, manage to surprise you. Yeah. Um, just to sign off, I'll say it, it's a very beautiful film that forces you to think about things that uh, is not obvious uh, on the narrative, uh, probably on the surface. There's a lot in it. There's really goofy, silly comedy. There's tragedy, makes you laugh. There's real romance, real swoony romance. It makes you laugh, makes you cry. What more can you ask for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's by Joachim Trier. Um, uh, he, he made Oslo, August 31, Louder Than Bombs and Thelma, among others. I haven't seen Reprise yet. Um, or his films before Oslo. Um, but for me, this is the best film he's made yet. Yeah, I can, um, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, I, I really, really liked it. Hashtag um, poetic, poetic cinema meme. In Deadpool. Yeah, this is poetic cinema <laughs> used on a drama, romantic dramedy template that usually yeah. does not have much poetry to it. And, that, yeah. and this just shows how approaching it from that poetic cinema aspect can elevate this, the genre so much without it ever becoming pretentious. Yeah. Um, so the next film we're going to talk about is nowhere near as good, but I think it's interesting in as a comparison point in trying to craft a, a film that skirts the line between mainstream appeal and uh, you know a mix of genre kind of elements within its own template, um, a mix of different kind of segments that try to change the the tone and the style of the film you know while also you know having artistic credibility having slow scenes and and having a poetic visual approach to elevate the material but yeah. man it falls flat yeah and the film we're talking about is hit the road by Panah Panahi who is Jafar Panahi's son aka mm. the film which is basically nepotism in that show we, were, thinking, we, we really were laughing nepotism? about it whether or not it, this is yeah. going to be the nepotism pick uh, of the year before the festival began. And actually it turns out to be right. It is. But it's a weird uh, one. Like, is it nepotism when Panahi has been punished for his films and is still making them, Jafar that is, is still making them within restrictions? Um, I guess he has the respect of the industry. So um, so perhaps despite not having the full resources available to him that, were, that have been used so well by Panahi to make a gorgeous looking film. Um, so I, I suppose maybe it still is nepotism. I don't know the ins and outs of the Iranian film industry yeah. well enough to know. I'm not necessarily, but the thing and, is- And for the purposes not... of this review, I think we should call, uh, whenever you're referring to Panahi, we will say that's Jafar. Jafar. And whenever we say uh, Panah, we mean his son. So sure. <laughs> yeah, otherwise it'll be very confusing. Yeah. Panahi we're referring to. Good point, but yeah, hit the road. I, we might be being yeah, mean in saying nepotism because this yeah. is a feature debut and it actually has some very strong redeeming features. So it's possible, like there's some films I look at where I say, I never want to watch another film from this director, but enough things were good in Hit the Road that I could see him working on and fixing some or mitigating the, potentially 
some of the things I didn't like about it. Yeah. So my, my major complaint with this film is, and which is a big complaint, was that I think this should have been a speculative uh, proof of concept short, essentially. Yeah. This, this didn't have enough legs to be a feature to begin with. Yeah. Would have I been spoke later on. Short. Yeah. I spoke to another friend of mine um, who was at the session downstairs while we were upstairs uh, later on, and she's she's an editor, and she had the same thoughts that we did, which is it should have been 30 to 45 minutes long. It's a, it's a, um, it feels extremely padded with a whole bunch of um, false endings. It's going- it's a lot of false endings. Oh my God, it's so many false endings. Yeah, it's going very much, this story is a road movie, um, sort of in the tradition of um, Jafar's mentor, Abbas Kiarostami, um, but more so in the tradition of Jafar Panahi with the kind of like appeals to the mainstream in, in the tone. Um, and and for the first 20 minutes, I thought the movie was going in a very different direction. Me too. Because I was very much into it. Uh, in the first 20 minutes, the, the story is following very much Jafar's style. Hmm. And I thought it was going to be a road movie where they pick up hitchhikers and they're going to talk philosophical discussions Which about life template. and, and their the, yeah. kind of... A template Panahi built on... Um, he, in Taxi, you know, it was very similar to Abbas Karasami's film 10. You know, where yeah. it's like segments of different people coming into the taxi and we explore different aspects of Iranian society through the end um, personal dynamics. And, and, and for the first 20 that minutes, would have been better. Props uh, for trying something different, but it did not yeah. work. For, for, for the first 20 minutes, the film was actually that. Uh, there, there is a character that they pick up. Hmm. They do have very interesting conversations. The framing was very interesting because the character That's, was kind of awkward in, in that sense. Yeah, and actually, it reminded me a lot of... Um, was interesting. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Three Faces, some of the inside the car camera work. I think he's taken some notes, some of these like 360-degree yeah. spinning shots around the car. So on that note, one of the big redeeming features of this film, it is beautiful. Jafar's regular DP is being used by the sun now and uh, working without the restrictions that Jafar has to work under. Um, it just looks so gorgeous. Um, a beautiful texture to the image, um, beautiful, beautiful compositions. However, it's showing a little bit of, First, um, this isn't necessarily a bad thing and it's not even necessarily a bad approach, but it shows something that I've noticed before in a lot of first time directorial films, which is like a real need to prove oneself with the visuals. So this film goes for a lot of ostentatious frames and they are gorgeous, but I think a more mature director would have used more restraint so as to make the eye popping compositions stand out more, allow the compositions to be a little bit more relaxed, like compare it to something like Petit Maman which features oh, some very Abbas Kiarostami-esque frames. Yeah. That film waits, you know, uses simple characters just tracking someone across the scene type of shots, as does Memoria. And then when it's time to blow you away, they do it. Yeah. Um, those are the films of mature directors. Yeah. Um, I, I recently watched the first film by her, uh, Kazuko Eda, who has such a relaxed style. And that movie is constantly trying to blow you away with these incredible wide shot compositions that look like paintings, similar approach here. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you don't need to do that. However, yeah. credit where credit's due, the shots are great. The images shots are the, great. Yeah. Shots are great. Uh, the acting is great. The acting's uh, great. The acting, but the dialogue is absolute shite. He doesn't know how to write dialogue. Needs to know, needs to. And there was some good dialogue. Words. There is some good dialogue in it. Yeah, There's also the, the, some the bad is, stretches. The dialogue is purely functional here, right? It feels like they're trying to reveal something deeper, but there's no depth to it. They just have the same conversations over and over again. There's yeah. literally no depth to it. I mean, look, Iran cute kid movies are a staple of the genre, have been for a very long time. Yeah. But this movie tipped the scales until you're trying too hard it to be cute for me. The tonal control was lost. The really cute yeah. dog, the really cute kid, 
Um, and and lip syncing to songs, which- I was about to mention that. Yeah. That that was so tonally, um, it is real tonally incohesive. And it really strikes me as a real appeal to being crowd-pleasing and to try to turn what is not really a crowd-pleasing narrative into a enjoyable film for the masses. This is why I compare it to Worst Person in the World. Look at the way that that film balances poetry and uh, genre mixes and, you know, keeping things like changing the tone um, to keep engaging a mainstream audience. And look at how amazingly it works there. The other problem I had was the music choices. The the interlude cues about which connects as a connective tissue between different scenes. Hmm. There's a a bar or a riff that uh, comes back over and over again. And hmm. that bar is very Western and feels like it belongs more in, in El Modavar film. But the problem is not- They talk about a lot of Western film in this as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's aimed at the West. I felt yeah. like this film is aimed at the West and establishing his reputation with the Western film festival set. And, and that's fine, but then again, you can use that. But then uh, the film also uses a lot of uh, local Iranian uh, pop music mm. that goes with that as well, or folk yeah, music it as does. well. It does within the car, and, uh, and for that, for me, the Western musical cues and then the Iranian musical cues did not go together, and I felt these are two very different films. That's Think the problem. Of- with the whole film and especially with the screenplay and the way it's structured thematically this whole thing's kind of a mess right yeah like if you when you think about the three lines through the film i don't like it became boring to us because we we both didn't sort of see where it was going it at a certain point it runs out of drama all of the tensions are kind of um and conflicts are established at the beginning but then they don't really progress until the end and the film just continues spinning its wheels it's just not a satisfying story and it's about smuggling someone to a border because they're a political enemy, right? But it, it's left vague what it's about. And um, that's a fair choice, but I don't think it worked here because so much of the film is spent just spinning its wheels. I'd like to see the, this plot go to the next level, um, if not by exploring what he actually did and some of the philosophical ramifications here, then just by something, you know? Yeah. These long, slow scenes towards the end that become painful, like the scene between the father and the son by a lake, which goes on forever. Um, because there's just really not actually much going on below the surface of this film. And maybe Panar actually had some better, deeper ideas, but he hasn't, I can't say. We'll see as his career progresses, but I don't think he's at the point yet where he's expressing them clearly enough to be as engaging as he needs to be. Great. So that was Hit the Road, which was probably one of the very few duds of the festival. Yeah. It had usually just like two films. That's about it. I can't think of any more which were absolute duds that I can say. No, that's well, there, there's one more which I'll talk about in a moment, but before we get to that, we're going to talk about a very good one, which is Memoria. Well, Sorry. which for a lot of people uh, is could be a dud, actually. A lot well, of people told me that they, they didn't get what the film was bad. Absolute boring, slow, painfully deaf, whatever. But we, we did like it because we are horrible people. We are <laughs> people the hit world. the road, by the way, Hit the Road is playing uh, on the, the 13th of November. Um, I know you must be buzzing to go out and buy tickets based on our recommendation. If you're a real Iranian cinema junkie, maybe you'll like it. But to me, uh, if you're a really Iranian cinema junkie, you'll watch There Is No Evil. That's or you'll watch the Kiristami retrospective. retrospective that's happening. Yes, <laughs> the Kiristami retrospective. I'm seeing three films in it in the last few days of the festival. Super keen. But Hit the Road is yeah, it's showing on the 13th of November at 6 p.m. at Palace Northern Street. And it's also showing um, here out west at the Casula Powerhouse the same night, the 13th of November at 8 p.m. Wait, so, is, it, is it showing here out west as well? 
No, I was just saying it's showing in the West, Casula Powerhouse. Oh, uh, it's, it's showing here on West. Oh, God, okay. <laughs> Sorry, it's too I, early I, in the morning for these kind of word plays. <laughs> All right. The next film we're going to talk about it is Memoria. This is an Apichitpong weir aesthetical film through and through. Um, if you're not familiar with his style, it's very transcendental. It's very slow cinema. It's very spiritual. And it's very abstract. And it's very oblique, right? But I think this his best work, um, and that speaks to this one, which to me is one of his best films. It's too early to say where it stands, but this is one of the ones I've been most impressed by. They are so precise in terms of meaning. I, I've like I hated the film A Ghost Story. Oh, Did yeah. you like that? A Ghost? No, I I mean there was a long pirating scene. That's all yeah. I remember from that film, and yeah, and Rooney Mara's navel. Right, yes. A lot of shots of Rooney Mara's navel for no reason. Anyway. Some of the few critics who disliked A Ghost Story made a point that it was a uh, a Hollywood Hollywoodized attempt at an Apichitpong weir aesthetical film, taking from his kind of transcendental. Um, history of, you know, history repeats in the present kind of themes and his lo-fi approach to special effects and, uh, you know, but doing it in a more dumbed down direction. Compare it, it it's, it's a version of Cosmic Infinite to the one in Memoria and you see the difference between someone in control of this kind of material and someone who's a, who's a dilettante with it. Um, Memoria is his first film made outside of Thailand because it's become harder and harder for him to get his films made there because he has been politically opposing the government. And most of his films take on a little bit of a wistful kind of um, whimsical, wondrous tone, exploring the strange contradictions of existence um, and spirituality and uh, echoes of the past seeping into the everyday. This film approaches those themes and it seemed very similar to me to my favorite of his films, his previous one, Cemetery of Splendor. But man, this film is dark. It's not dark in a depressing way. It's not nihilistic, but this is, I think, communicating a genuine sense of awe, which is very ominous. It's the the it, it's matched for darkness in his filmography only by Uncle Boonmay to me, which also carried a little bit of an ominous darkness to it. Um, so this film is set in Colombia, features Tilda Swinton as a wealthy woman, seems to be the wife of a businessman or something. But really, the plot details aren't that important. Yeah, apologetic. We know that much. She's yeah, she, she's hearing a sound. That's the she's hearing a sound and she's trying to get to the bottom of it. She's working with a sound designer. She's um, but she keeps hearing it in places. And the the film is vignettes, some of which she hears the sound in, and some of which are uh, just explorations of various themes. That for some people they'll say, "What was the point of that? How does that cohere?" But to me, there was a very clear kind of riffing on themes, building it, you know, build like this movie is a pool that invites you to dip your toes in and think about a bunch of themes that echo and bounce against each other in the film. Yeah, building up to also, this huge also, on, on a much, much more simpler note, right? I mean, for the, most of the film, most of the first half of the film, Tilda mm -hmm. Swinton's character, Jessica, is trying to ascertain what this sound actually yeah. sounds like and trying to describe it as perfectly as she can so that that sound, can sound be that sound can be replicated. Right, mm -hmm. or she can uh, try to get to the bottom of it because if she can describe it perfectly, then hopefully that'll help her to find out the source of it. Right, and uh, thematically, the film is actually dealing with that, trying to describe anxiety, trying to describe mm -hmm. feelings of hopelessness, loneliness, and, yeah, and trying your place in the world, trying to find your place in the world, uh, and trying doing to connect it in a way, 
trying to be understood yeah. for experiencing yeah. something somebody else exactly. you know the people around you don't know and how far does a person yeah. have to go to find that sense of connection and if you, if you look about I look at this actually uh, one of the major uh, i guess challenges of the 21st century in this kind of for for you know uh, us somewhat left of center people is trying to uh, ascertain this push and pull between people who have lived experiences of things right uh, how can we uh, a be an ally to them or be or understand their experiences better when we have an experience of the same things right are, are those people who have only experienced those things are those the only people who can uh, tell those stories and tell those narratives and are those other people not ever going to understand them at all or, mm -hmm. or, or just, you know there, there's so many themes here which actually are to, resonant in a 21st century world to me this this film is building on the theme in symmetry of splendor of how can is it possible to empathize so strongly to experience the world as somebody else does can, can yeah which um and this is a, a beautiful riffing on that subject i i wanted us to close out on this um and this film and end this first part of our week one city film festival wrap up on a high um but i, I take a brief interlude here to discuss a film i really didn't like never going to snow again which i thought think is a really interesting point of comparison right a pictured pong making a film in colombia could have really exoticized it. To an extent, he shows you some of the, the, the strength. He's show, looking at it with his alien eyes, which are just as interesting as the ways that he looks at Thailand, right? But in exoticizing it, he could easily have gone leapt in the direction of look at the magic and wonder of the magical people, of the magical tribes and magic, 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 almost like the magical Negro trope, you know, with the South American person, right? But what, but the, what shows Apichitpong's deep belief in spirituality and humanity is the fact that in this film, it's also about cross-cultural communication. And you know, and what this film I think shows is a Scottish woman can be magical just as much as some isolated guy living in a jungle in Colombia, right? Um, this, this movie isn't just like cheap foreign exoticism. This movie is like a plea for everybody in the world to be shocked into an awareness of our essential unity in our shared history, our shared memories, it's about focusing on the beauty of nature, the, the expanse of wonder. I think a picture poem is really trying to draw your attention to the bigger picture. And I think there's a, an aspect of this movie of showing the ecological destruction that's going on while people are trying to find connection in shared history, you know, that, that's very much tied to the land, right? This is about also the memories of, of the rocks and the trees and the mountains. Um, it's a deep, it's a very heady film and it's explored, as I said, as a kind of abstract pool that you can dip your toes into. So not everyone will like it, but to talk about a film that, um, to briefly trash a movie, you know, I never, I don't have fun trashing movies anymore. I prefer to just talk about the ones I love. So in brief, Never Gonna Snow Again. This movie um, is the complete opposite of what I was saying about Memoria when it comes to its approach to magic characters and cross-cultural communication, right? This movie is about a Polish masseuse um, who has magic fingers, right? He's got a supernatural power that allows him to connect with people through like healing their emotional pain and trauma. Um, and he's in, in this Polish um, wealthy housing uh, gated community area, right? But he ultimately has no depth to him. He exists as nothing but a um, Ukrainian in a Polish land twist on this magical Negro archetype where he has no flaws. He fixes everybody's problems. He's from the countryside. 
it, it, to me, this movie was just nonsense. To me, this movie was the height of bourgeois. I don't care about all these people's rich person problems. I don't care about this magical guy who's just too good for this world. He's just too wonderful and magical and no one can understand how great he is as he kills everybody's emotional trauma with a touch of his magical Ukrainian uh, fingers. No conflicts, uh, no dramas, all of the cliches in the book. So then you watch something like Memoria, which is, you know, handling similar themes in a completely different way, which is fresh, which is new, right? I, I suspect that Memoria is destined for the film canon because it is doing things I haven't seen done before in many films in a really, or well, any films for some of the things in this movie, um, in a really precise way. So it's going to en enter into the academic circles with film studies and people writing about it. So it's going to be remembered, you know, appropriately enough. But uh, Tilda Swinton's amazing. What did you think of her performance? I think, I think look, uh... There's some uh, very deliberate choices with Tilda Swinton that a, she made and which were made for the character, which were very interesting. And I think they helped the story quite a lot. Firstly, the kind of uh, costume design for her character. Mm. She's always mm. only wearing baggy, saggy clothing, which uh, doesn't give away. There's a certain androgynous styling to her clothing, which I think was important to the character because uh, it, it, it's, and you'll find out when you watch the film, uh, whether or not, you know, that the kind of uh, not giving her form-fitting uh, costuming was important to the theme and, and the message of the film. The, it's not sort of spelt out in the final film, but I remember when this film was first announced and we're hearing a picture from kind of pitches for the film and sales agency type stuff. Yeah. It was called, described her as, a, I think, as, as like a depressed or a withdrawn woman. Yeah. It's that. She's, she's, she is haunted by something and she's not, she's so alienated from um, her family. But it's, it's, it's a beautiful style. But also, just uh, interestingly, the, the amount of uh, uh, heavy lifting she does in scenes where she is overcome with emotion. Yes, uh, as yes. In, in very slow, deliberate scenes, as she has to well up and build up those heightened emotional sequences through a kind of physicality of body language, which is in, from a performance of an actor with, there's not much dialogue for, not, no, for, for, for an actor who just is giving out a very basically is carrying the film on her shoulders that's right for most of the film doesn't have much dialogue to play with has to rely on physicality and actual an emotional bodily experience to kind mm. of uh to play with that's which it. actually the bodily experience is the best way to describe her performance because she yeah. actually has to reach in something deep inside of her mm. and really uh, basically find something within her to kind of bring it out onto her face That's and right. a kind of an heightened emotional experience. So one of the scenes that, where this is really extraordinary is, is this mesmerizing scene early in the film of her working with a sound designer to try to build um, a reconstruction of the sound she's hearing in her head, um, where we're just watching her face as she responds to different ideas, which, and you completely, it's moving because you yeah. feel like this, this could be such an absurd concept but you feel like you're seeing, and you are, seeing someone go through something deep, you know? A lot of the I, film is also watching her being startled in wide shots. Yeah. Because a lot of this movie is a, um, the sound is one thing, but it's like sort of kind of, the sound is like vibrations that echo through the film in term, in where it's like subtly a pitch pong recetical is linking every moment where of shock yeah. to these ripples of, of sound and energy through time. 
the the other thing we will highly recommend. Uh, I I know we we made a joke about the fact that this film is never going to reach the home video market because it's going to only circulate within within theaters. For but the not the not explicitly. Time. Look, movie have the rights in some territories. There's no way. I know, I know, I know. I know. But at the same time, we would highly recommend cinema. for you to go and see this in the cinema. Because of sound because design. The sound design of this film is meant mm. for a theatrical experience. And the wide, the, the wide shot approach where um, often, and this, it's part of the, you know, the aesthetic is part and parcel of the themes about community and identity and uh, varieties of experience that he's expressing. But often he'll frame a scene with, um, for example, like people talking at a table, but film it from a, a distance so that we can watch other people going about their days doing things and, and allow our eyes to wander and our minds to wander. I, I, look, this is such a beautiful film. I, this is actually, I, it might, like, for moment-to-moment -moment enjoyment, I might have preferred um, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, but I think because of the way that it's stuck with me, my overall favourite film of the festival in the year so far is Memoria. Comparing, or, uh, comparing it to a ghost story or other slow cinema wank-type films, um, that's it. This film is exploring boredom and alienation through long takes, and that's really been an out for a lot of, I think, indie filmmakers to make ultimately boring alienated, nothing's going on type movies. But this film has so much going on underneath the surface that to me, there was always things to ruminate on. Um, and these, you know, you can live and, and dream with this film because it's expressing really deep things. Um, I, I, I was just so taken by this movie. So we'll be back with a part two where we'll explore um, some more of the films we've seen over the past week. That'll be an extra podcast episode. We'll be delving deep into our memoria to 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 to. Oh, I mean, that's right. Yeah, but literally, I've literally we've wrapped up on memoria right now until it gets a broader release, maybe. But yeah. uh, I can't recommend this film highly enough. I'd love to if... sit some of these films and actually come back and do an in-depth review. Me too. Not, not just not just from a theatrical perspective, but some of these films. I feel like at a festival run, we're not able to do them justice. Yeah. Running like imagine if I'd seen Annette as yeah. part of uh, outside the festival, would the images have resonated with me for afterwards and would I have kept thinking about it as long? Probably not, that's the drawback of festivals. As soon as you're processing one film, you get drowned by another one. So for me, it's a testament to Memoria that that one has stayed with me and I keep reflecting back on it at, at idle moments in my day. Um, he invited me into the world of the film and, and uh, I, put my, I gave myself over and it's given back. Uh, you know, stay well, everyone. Enjoy the festival. Tons of great movies to come. An amazing selection. I really don't think you can go wrong. Almost everything we've seen, as I hope has come across, has been good. Um, and everything that we are going to see, uh, hopefully in the future, also looks pretty good. Uh, from from. Look, I've had to fill out my flexi, so I'm I'm seeing um, uh, a movie you've already seen and hated, the uh, story of my wife. So we'll see if that holds. No, no. Okay, that that might actually surpass it, right? in terms of your worst film of, of the festival. Fair enough. We'll talk about it next time. Not in part two, that is. Next yeah. episode. It, next Wednesday. It's it, it surprising because the, the last film by that director on Body and Soul won the Sydney uh, Top Prize competition. Mm. And I've only seen that in my 20th century from her, but both were very good. Yeah, they're, they're both very good, which is why I'm surprised how this... Everyone puts good. a foot wrong sometimes. It's it's not a foot. It's we'll talk about it later. We're getting off topic. They buried a dead body in there. Anyway, yeah. it's busy just... time. Thanks for thanks for staying with us. Yeah. we've loved talking about it. This has been such an invigorating, inspiring time. Um, but we'll talk about that more with Glenn. Um, yeah, you're great. This is great. Love movies. Love each other. Sydney Film Festival. 
enjoy Merry Christmas. Enjoy, <laughs> watch them and cherish them. You know, you yeah. never, it's been, as Neshan said, it's been hard to put this festival on. Um, and as we often discuss in the show, you never know how much longer the, the theatrical experience is going to be there with you. Cherish seeing films with something to say or something deep to express with a crowd. You know, community is important. As long as you, you're okay, I'm not saying take risks if you're not ready for them with regard to COVID. But if, but if you are, um, you know, if you think it's a, it's a calculated risk, um, which personally I believe that now, I wasn't sure about that a few months ago, but I believe it now. Um, I think that this festival is a magical time. And that's the perfect note to sign off. Uh, we'll see you very soon with more Festival Madness with more movies and more movies and more movies before. More and 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 more movies. And then more and more and more and more and more.